Good afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM. I'm Franklin, and this is the last of 2006's Berkeley Grocks. That's right, it's our year-end look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, Big Bang, Mind Body, and Night Owls. We'll also be joined by Paul Siegel to talk about silent earthquakes and checkbook men on combined heat and power systems. Also, we'll find out what schistosomiasis is. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week coming right up here on the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Welcome back to Frank Grox. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee, the voice of the new year. Another one? Well, I guess it's not quite the new year yet, but... <laughs> so have you wondered... First, how was your Christmas, Frank? Oh, that thing, right? I kind of celebrate now. <laughs> Did you get any good gifts? Well, I was hoping for an iPod. Santa has been running out of those, short on stock, I think. Uh, isn't it made in some sweat shop in China? <laughs> I think the elves are making it. <laughs> oh, okay. Did you get anything interesting this year, Charles? Uh, again, I got, I got another piece of coal to add to my collection of coal, so... And if it's really cold, you can uh, burn it. (laughs) (laughs) Great source of fuel. And CO2. My greenhouse house. (laughs) So, Charles, have you ever wondered, do you think people can uh, reproduce asexually? By budding or fission? Well, I'm uh, sure it's not for lack of trying. Or maybe females uh, getting pregnant without being inseminated. The immaculate conception? Yes. I guess I could imagine that it might be possible genetically. Yeah. But has it ever happened? Apparently it's pretty common with snakes. Snakes, you say? I'm sensing something that might be the animal fact of the week. (laughs) Yes, this is the animal. Snakes. (laughs) They can reproduce asexually if they want to. Which makes me wonder, do you think the Virgin Mary was a snake? I thought that was Satan, so I'm not sure what that means. That's the right time of the year to debate this, right? <laughs> I didn't even know there was a debate, but we could start one here on Berkeley Rocks. <laughs> yeah, we're all descended from snakes. <laughs> okay, so I, I guess since we are in a season of goodwill and spirituality, have you wondered if there's a mind-body connection? I mean, obviously the mind can, and the body interact. What do you mean by the mind-body connection here? Uh, more specifically, that your mind and your overall psychological state can have a huge influence on your immune system, you know, even uh, simple uh, biochemical processes. By releasing hormones into the system, which regulate these things. Right. In fact, it, this could be quite strong. There's new research coming out from UC San Diego suggesting that the central nervous system can modulate the response to uh, rheumatoids. Uh, rheumatoids are this disease where you actually have uh, inflammation at your joints, partly because your immune system's attacking it, right? Mm. Until this time, one of the treatments is to target the enzymes at the site of the disease. Uh, These are the so-called P38 enzymes, which are released in response to the stress to regulate the inflammation. They thought you could do this all chemically, but it turns out if you can train yourself or modulate your nervous system to not react so strongly to these stresses, then overall the inflammation goes down and you'll survive. Wow. Learning how to meditate or just what is the actual method you would use? This is up for debate, but this research just shows more evidence that instead of developing a whole host of of inhibitors to block these responses, we should go back to the nervous system, which could be the basis of all the stress and diseases that we experience. This was very interesting work carried out by Gary Firestein at UC San Diego, and it was published in PLOS Medicine. (music) 
right, well, here's more from the world of mind-body connections, or perhaps mind-god connections. <laughs> Did you see the light this uh, season? I'm living perpetually in the dark, which actually is the next story, but neuroscientists think they've identified a network of brain regions activated in the brain when nuns feel that they're at one with God. It's the nun factor. <laughs> so this is actually an interesting question. A lot of researchers are interested in maybe what processes in the brain give rise to the feelings of a heightened spiritual experience. Uh-huh. A group of researchers led by Mario Beauregard at the University of Montreal in Canada studied this using nuns, put them in an fMRI scanner, mm-hmm. had them recollect their experience uh-huh. of being at spiritual peace or at one with God. Right. And then he had a control where they just imagined being at one with another person. And he found that a particular part of the brain called the caudate nucleus nucleus uh-huh. is very active during this process. Okay. Another different area, because most people have actually implicated the temporal cortex, uh, usually from epilepsy studies, as being involved in this heightened sense of spiritual experience. Right. And so what these researchers are suggesting is that, well, if you know what parts of the brain are active during this, maybe you can also go back and try and stimulate that part of the brain and mm. create that feeling after the fact. Mm-hmm. So we can't uh, bottle this and package it and market it? <laughs> well, I think maybe that's their hope. God in a bottle. <laughs> but until such time, prayer might work or something. <laughs> Gotta do it the old-fashioned way. Right? This is interesting work actually funded by the John Templeton Foundation, oh. which pays for research into the relationship between science and religion. And it was published in the recent edition of Neuroscience Letters. So, Charles, do you know what's the best way to end it all for the year? Fireworks. How about a big bang? The big bang is always cool, but isn't that how it all began? That's what we thought, but now the latest evidence suggests that maybe it didn't. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. So the prevailing theory was that you would see these shadows around certain galaxies, especially the ones that emit a lot of microwave radiation. So what kind of shadows are these? They're just something that's observed in the presence of big galactic clusters. The new research findings show that it's only been observed at one quarter of the time rather than at all the times around these galactic clusters out in the galaxy, out in the uh, space. So does that mean that the uh, Big Bang was only one quarter <laughs> as strong, or what? The uh, implication? We don't know. This could be a problem, because now uh, this sort of throws off the original theories about microwave background radiation and the Big Bang. And so it's possible that you know, the measurements were off because signals are weak, but this brings into doubt the theory of the uh, Big Bang now. Researchers for quite some time have been debating the, the specifics of the Big Bang theory. There might be uh, subtleties that they're perhaps missing. Yeah, maybe, or maybe not Big Bang, but at least... We're trying to figure out the mysteries of the universe here. If anyone wants to know more, this was work carried out by Richard Liu at University of Alabama in Huntsville, and it was published in Astrophysical Journal. All right, and finally, uh, are you going to be staying up all night this uh, New Year's Eve? I don't ever remember staying up uh, over New Year's Eve. <laughs> the best time. That's when you get to shoot the guns in the air and... (laughs) (laughs) Shoot your neighbors. Yeah. Well, should old acquaintance be for... (laughs) So this is interesting work uh, regarding being a night owl. Being a night owl? What, is it good or bad? Well, apparently they say it's not really good for teens who have to be on a set schedule to go to to school. Mm -hmm. Symptom known as delayed sleep phase syndrome may actually be responsible for a lot of teens not being able to get to bed uh, early and uh, rise on time. Oh, so it's just a a permanent affliction that... Uh, they carry on after uh, they uh, grow older, or is it just a temporary thing? Uh, it can be a, sort of a temporary thing. It can be trained out, they say, that you can train the circadian rhythm to uh, reset according to a more normal 
quote, schedule. Right. And so basically what they suggest is a lot of things for helping people get to sleep. No caffeine before bed, no exercise, uh, limit the amount of uh, light exposure at those times of the day, and of course give artificial light to help retrain the body. None of which I follow, of course. <laughs> <laughs> which may explain why uh, you're up at uh, 3 in the morning fighting crime. <laughs> and we all have to thank you for that. <laughs> oh, you're very welcome. <laughs> so anyway, this is very fascinating work. And he says, again, it might be very important, especially for teens or people who have maybe trouble sleeping. These behavior modifications might help. Information about this, you can check it out. We're carried out by Dr. Grace Pien of the University of Pennsylvania's Division of Sleep Medicine. And that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science and technology. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM KALX. In a few moments, Paul Siegel joins us to talk about silent earthquakes. Well, most of us know earthquakes for their movements, perceptible or unperceptible. But what's intriguing scientists these days are even slower motions, which could have dramatic impacts in the seismology of an area. And joining us to talk about uh, some of these new developments is Professor Paul Siegel uh, from Stanford University. Professor Siegel, thank you so much for joining us today on Berkeley Grox. Um, it's my pleasure. So first of all, um, what exactly are uh, silent earthquakes, um, and how are they different from uh, the conventional ones that uh, everybody uh, knows about? Well, silent earthquakes are slips on faults that occur too slowly to generate seismic waves. So they're earthquakes in the sense of slipping faults, but they're not earthquakes in the sense of causing ground shaking. So we call them silent earthquakes. Presumably, these can lead to... um Catastrophes, um, how does that happen? Well, actually, no, they can't. So that, that's the whole, um, the whole point of them being silent, is they don't cause the ground to shake. And so if all earthquakes would be silent, we wouldn't have an earthquake problem. And what is the significance of this discovery? Well, our work was not the first report of a silent earthquake. They've been known now for several years. They appear to occur most frequently in what we call subduction zones. Those are the areas where tectonic plates dive into the mantle, and they seem to occur at the the lower limit of where conventional large earthquakes occur in in these zones. And so we've seen them in Japan, we've seen them in the Pacific Northwest United States, Central America, and elsewhere where the subduction phenomenon is occurring. And what does this mean for people who live around these uh, subduction zones? The interesting thing is that in some places, at least, these appear to be rather periodic, and that means that we can design experiments to go out and look for them ahead of time. Again, it's unfortunate that, that damaging earthquakes do not appear to be periodic, 
uh, because it would be wonderful if we could forecast them. The irony is that we can forecast these earthquakes that don't cause ground shaking and don't kill people much better than we can the ones that, that cause shaking. But we think you know, the hope is that by understanding this new phenomenon, if we can understand it better, it might lead to um, better forecasts of, of damaging earthquakes. And the study you're referring to that we did, we were looking at silent earthquakes on the big island of Hawaii on the volcano. And uh, so this is a very different kind of tectonic environment than large subduction zones, but similar events do occur. And what we found is that there were swarms of small earthquakes, conventional earthquakes that shake the ground, but too small for anybody to notice. We can detect them with sensitive instruments. But the silent earthquakes are actually spawning swarms or sequences of small earthquakes, like aftershocks. So they're, we, view, we view them as aftershocks of these silent earthquakes. And we think if by studying them, we may be able to learn more about how earthquakes are triggered. And these um, silent earthquake events, what exactly is happening? Is pressure building up between the subduction zones? There is no good theory at this point to describe them. They are in many places associated with a very interesting phenomenon called tremor, specifically non-volcanic tremor. And tremor is a, is something that we can detect on seismometers that, that constitutes a shaking of the ground, typically at very low frequency and typically very monochromatic. So if you could hear it, it would sound like almost like a single tone, but it's well below the audible range. And we know these two phenomena are linked in many places. They, the tremor only occurs when the silent earthquakes occur, but there's no model yet that, that people agree to as to what's causing this. In terms of volcanic activities, is there any correlation with them? Only very indirectly in that volcanoes are associated, many types of volcanoes like Mount St. Helens, for example, are associated with subduction zones. Uh, the volcanoes in Hawaii that we've been studying are not directly associated with subduction zones. So there's an indirect link. The, the, the volcanic tremor that we see prior to and during many eruptions is interpreted to be a shaking of the ground as fluids flow through conduits, much the way water rushing through a pipe can cause a banging noise. But in the silent earthquake case, it's it's t still debated as to whether that kind of a process is occurring or it's something very, very different. In terms of your um, experiments and uh, data collection, how, um, how did you come to these conclusions? What you were observing was indeed an earthquake and not just some other uh, anomaly in the uh, Earth's movement. Right. That's a good point. Well, my PhD student at the time uh, in Hawaii was the first one to discover this in Hawaii, a man named Peter Cervelli. And he had been looking at data from Hawaii and saw what looked like a step offset in our data. These are GPS measurements, which measured the position of points on the surface of the volcano. It appeared as if on a particular day, a lot of the stations had moved in, in, a, in one direction. And at first, he just assumed that this had to be some kind of error that he hadn't accounted for. So he spent several days trying to fix the error and make this go away, and eventually he concluded that he could not make it go away, and furthermore, that these offsets in the data were restricted to stations that were geographically restricted to a particular area, and that when he looked at it on a map, it looked as if an earthquake had occurred, but we didn't know of any earthquake. So then we started looking for evidence of an earthquake that would have been big enough to account for that, and we couldn't find any. So that's when we finally came to the conclusion that it was this new class of phenomenon, a silent earthquake.
Great. And, um, you know, what are some of the mysteries that uh, remain and that, you know, you'd like to uh, uh, work on? Well, we'd like to understand physically what causes these silent earthquakes. We'd like to understand the tremor signals that are apparently associated with them. In Hawaii, to date, we haven't yet detected tremor signals. So if that's confirmed, this will be the first place where we have silent earthquakes and not tremors. So that will be interesting and may help to elucidate the mechanisms that are responsible for that. We think that there is a, it's likely another one of these events will occur this spring. And so we're in the process of colleagues in Hawaii and elsewhere trying to put in more instruments to catch the next one of these silent slip events and, and get a better handle on them and the swarms of very small earthquakes that they spawn. In terms of the periodicity, how, how regular are they? Are they the same at each region or, or different? It's, it's very different. In the Pacific Northwest, in the, in the Seattle area, they, Seattle up to, to Vancouver area, they appear to occur every 13 months. And this has been regular enough that people have been able to predict, go out and put out instruments and actually catch them. There, uh, it's fairly well confirmed. The periodicity is somewhat different in Japan. In Hawaii, we see them roughly every two years. It's been a really fascinating discussion. Uh, Professor Siegel, are there any last words you'd like to add about uh, your work uh, or yourself? Oh, well, just that uh, people should know that there's still a lot of mysteries about the Earth, and, and when we have the ability to make new kinds of measurements, we're finding new things that we didn't even dream existed before. Uh, Professor Siegel, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. And we were just talking to Professor Paul Siegel from Stanford University on the phenomena of silent earthquakes. This is Berkeley Grosh you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Chuck McMinn joins us to talk about combined heat and power in the winery. So stay tuned. Berkeley Grox, where towards the goal of reducing emissions, uh, certain technologies in industry have emerged. Among them is combined heat and power. In California, the wine industry is a major uh, sector of the economy. And today we have a very special guest, Mr. Chuck McMinn, who will tell us about the CHP, or Combined Heat and Power Program, uh, system that they've installed at their winery. Uh, Mr. McMinn, thank you so much for joining us today on Berkeley Grox. Thanks, Frank. I'm glad to be here. So uh, we're certainly excited to hear about technologies being deployed in the uh, industry. And um, first of all, could you tell us a little bit about your system and uh, what it took to uh, get it installed? Sure, I'm happy to. Uh, so Vineyard 29 is a winery that in St. Helena that produces uh, about 10,000 cases of wine per year for seven different wineries, including ourselves. And when we started building the building in uh, 2001, the mechanical engineering consultant that we had hired suggested that we look at uh, ways to reduce our uh, energy footprint. And in particular, he suggested we look at microturbines, which are uh, small natural gas burning turbines that uh, 
spin uh, and produce electricity as they burn uh, natural gas. Mm -hmm. And the byproduct, the cogeneration uh, piece of it, is that we can use the heat off those, uh, off that uh, burning natural gas to heat uh, all the water that we use in the winery. And a winery uses about three gallons of water for every gallon of wine that it produces. Uh, specifically about your system, it's a capstone system, right? Right. We use two capstone microturbines, each capable of 60 kilowatts of power. So we have a, uh, uh, about 120 kilowatts that we can generate here uh, on the electricity side. And then uh, we capture the waste heat off of those turbines and use that to heat hot water that we use in the winery. And that wa hot water is uh, used to, you know, for all the winery processing steps. We also use the hot water to heat the building in the winter. Mm. And uh, we have uh, so much, uh, you know, such a great source of energy in that hot water. They, we actually use it as the power source for an adsorption chiller, okay. which lets, lets us provide all the chilled water that we use in the winery. And that chilled water is used again in the fermentation process to control the heat that comes off of fermentation. We use it to run the air conditioning system in the winery in the summertime. And we also use it to chill our cave temperature down below what the natural ground temperature in Napa Valley would give us. You're also able to provide most of your electricity through this system, right, without going to the grid. Yes, that's, that's true. We produce 100% of the electricity that we use here at Vineyard 29. We do that at about half the cost of buying electricity and, and the natural gas we would need to run our boiler. And uh, at the same time, we're about seven times less polluting than a PG&E power plant. So that's in terms of kilowatt hours, right? In terms of kilowatt hours. We're about 82% efficient in the conversion of our, our, our uh, uh, fuel source into useful work, whereas a normal PG&E power plant would be about 30% efficient. Approximately how many kilowatt hours do you use per year? If we, if, if we did not have the microturbines here, mm -hmm. in order to run our winery, we, would, we need about 290,000 kilowatt hours for our electrical loads and uh, uh, we, f to run the, just the normal building loads. Okay. And then we also would have a need for some chilled water anyway in the fermentation process. And that would be another 110,000 kilowatt hours for, for the chiller, the electric chiller we would otherwise need. Okay, and this is to process approximately 100 acres of grapes, is that right? That's correct. It's about 100 acres worth of grapes from those seven different wineries that, okay. that we produce, and that's about 10,000 cases of wine a year. Could you tell us perhaps how much it costs to install a system and what the payback is in terms of the uh, energy saved? Okay, happy to. Uh, so the difference between us running with the turbines and without the turbines is roughly a savings of... Uh, about 50% in our total energy bills, our combined mm -hmm. gas and electricity bills. Uh -huh. And for us, that's uh, depending on the gas prices uh, some, and, the, and the electric prices, that's somewhere between twenty-five dollars and $35,000 a year in mm -hmm. savings mm -hmm. on, on, our, on those bills alone. And the actual cost of the putting this in was uh, about $470,000 in total, but there is an incentive for putting in right. green uh, energy sources, and right. so we got a credit from uh, the state for $120,000 of that. Uh -huh. 
We also save by not having to put in a backup diesel generator here to be our backup power. Oh, I see. And that's another $120,000. Mm -hmm. And we also got away with putting in a smaller electric chiller than we would otherwise have needed because mm -hmm. we had this free chilled water source. Right. And so, the, so net, we were only in it uh, about two hundred thousand dollars. Okay. And that, so that payback at thirty thousand dollars a year is, uh, is you know, about seven years, a little bit less, six years, something like that. Okay. So, which is uh, typical of these types of installations, right? Yeah, actually, it's it's a relatively short period. If you look at some of the paybacks on solar or wind power, some of the more exotic mm -hmm. alternative energy sources, mm -hmm. the paybacks can be in the double-digit number of years. And with the installation of the system, have you had any problems or have you had any issues with hardworks? Uh, so the, the reliability of the system has been great. The hardware has been, you know, rock solid. Mm -hmm. it, you know, this is a system that has uh, a lot of moving parts, uh, and they seem to have worked very well. Right. It also is a system that has the need for a lot of communication and a lot of uh, computer control. And okay. As with most computer software, there's always bugs and mm -hmm. always uh, features that you'd like to have added. Right. And the good news is that we can continue to evolve the control system and how we manage the, the turbines and, and, and are continuing to do that today. Okay, great. Uh, are there other wineries which are interested in, in deploying these systems and, you know, what in terms of the awareness, is there a huge demand, huge, um, you know, pull towards CHP systems? Uh, that's a good question. We must have had uh, over a hundred winery owners and winemakers come to take a look at our system since we've put it in, mm -hmm. and uh, there, I, I think a lot of them are now looking when they expand uh, or when they build a new winery to uh, installing these kinds of systems. Uh, mm -hmm. There's probably a half a dozen that are somewhere in the design process today, and I'm not sure there may even be a few more that are up and, and running by now. So you know, we're certainly um proud of your efforts to lower the emissions, but you've also uh, done a lot towards sustainability, uh, not using um, herbicides and uh, fungicides where possible, and also using um, non-chlorinated water. What, was there a lot of effort needed to attain those standards? Uh, well, Frank, you're right. You know, we, we try, you know, we're in the agricultural business. We're in the farming business. If there's anyone that should be sensitive to the land and how to use it correctly, it's, it's the wine business. And mm -hmm. so we've taken a number of steps to reduce our impact on not just on the electricity side but also in our use of water in our discharges as well so we pump uh, water from wells on the property mm -hmm. and process and hold it uh, process it as we need to uh, to clean it up and get it usable in the winery and then we discharge it into a septic system and a leach field on the property so we have no no effluent that that leaves the property everything that is sustainable in that point and uh, we also take great care to minimize our use of uh, insecticides or herbicides in the vineyard, for sure. We use none of that in the vineyard. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in places like our cooling tower, that typically you put herbicides and, and fungicides in to control algae growth. And even in the cooling tower, we have uh, gone to a pulsed electric system there mm -hmm. that allows us to kill those microorganisms that allow us to kill those microorganisms that would otherwise uh, contamin contamin contaminate the cooling tower. And we uh, were able to, uh, you, know, re re you know, eliminate all of those and again, mm -hmm. not in inject any of those into the cooling tower air or the cooling tower outflow. We're certainly inspired uh, by your work here. Uh, are there any last words you'd like to add about yourself or uh, your winery? 
Well, I think that uh, you know we, we think we're trying to do the best, make the best wine we can, mm -hmm. and part of making the best wine is to having as little impact on uh, on the agriculture on the land as we as we can. And uh, I'd, I'd encourage any of you that would like to come by and see us to just look us up on the web at www.vineyard29.com. Well, Mr. McMinn, thank you for your time. Thank you. And we were just talking to Mr. Chuck McMinn of Vineyard 29 of Napa Valley. In a few moments, we'll find out what schistosomiasis is, so stay right there. Berkeley Rocks, and now here's uh, the Tokyo Kid with the answer to last week's uh, question of the week. What is a schistosomiasis? Well, schistosomiasis is when the parasite uh, you uh, ingest and then go into your bloodstream and it's a uh, disease. That's a schistosomiasis. <laughs> Whoa, dude, man, like, I've been trying to, like, catch the waves of all sorts of things, man. My life is, like, totally in disarray, man. Whoa, what's all going on, man? What's this entropy all about? Well, dude, if you know the answer or just think you know the answer, email us at grox at hotmail.com. Whoa, man, the waves, they're all over the place. And that's all for this year's Berkeley Grok. Make sure you tune in next year and next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a very happy new year and stay tuned for more music. 